Yeah. Thank you. Good morning, friends. I'll be there in a moment. But uh, before I get there, let me say thank you for the opportunity to worship with you this morning. For uh, 38 years, Celia and I have been your spiritual neighbors. That's a long time, isn't it? When you think of all the things that have gone on in those years, we have ties to this congregation that are deep and that are dear. We have friends who are here. We have uh, served with a number of your pastors over the years and enjoyed their fellowship. We know Mac and Jeannie well and love those folks. Had coffee with Pastor Matt on a number of occasions, and we talked about church life. And now you have um, hired one of my comrades in ministry, Dave Armstrong, who we spent some 25, about 25 years together in ministry, and uh, it's just one more tie to this church. And as that, that weren't enough, I, I also do some advancement work for Calvin Theological Seminary, so I'm aware of the Healthy Church Initiative and uh, the process you're going through, and I'm grateful that you're in that process and have prayed, and I will pray that God blesses that as together you seek his will, his purpose, his vision for the life of Faith Church of Elmhurst. God bless you in it, and again, thank you for the opportunity to spend just a bit of time with you this morning. But now for the reason we're here. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father God, as so often has been the case, both from my life and from this pulpit over the years, we're asking that yet once more, the words from the lips of those who speak and the meditations of the hearts of those who hear would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. In the name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen. Well, friends, would you agree with me that we are coming out of, at least the, uh, there seems to be some indication we are coming out of, some of the most difficult days that we have experienced in our lifetime. And at age 76, I can tell you there have been some difficult days in my life. I'm not talking about uh, my inability to operate the remote on my TV set. And um, I'm not talking about the challenge of trying to remember passwords to different accounts in the internet. I'm talking about uh, family issues that are deep and profound and disturbing that we've walked through and you're probably walked through your own. But beyond that, even a broader range of issues that have touched every life in this congregation, things that are way out of our control, far beyond our ability to really manage even successfully and sometimes even understand. I mean, COVID has done things in our generation and I think unle unleashed some forces in our generation that will be reckoned with for years to come. And when you add to that challenge the kind of challenges that we've had in a political process and the uh, resulting separation of conservatives and liberals that seem to drift farther and farther apart and have such a hard time talking together. And then you add to that the challenge of thinking about trillions with a T, trillions of dollars 
added to a national budget, and we're thinking, how, an, how are our great-grandchildren, our grandchildren, much less any of us, how are we ever going to meet those debts and those obligations? We, we realize that these are difficult days indeed. And then, and then spiritual life, right? The church, this has not been a happy moment so far, has it? Lord willing, it'll get better. But just, I just have to say that in the church, we're facing things that we've not faced before. Grinnell College uh, released a study this past week that indicates that from uh, in the last five years, church attendance has decreased 7%. But those of us who keep an eye on the church and those of you who are here every Sunday know that in the last two years, it's been a, a, a far more precipitous drop than that. And we wonder, will it ever be the same again? Are we going to get back to the place where we once were? In the year 1999, 70% of Americans claimed church membership. In the year 2020, 47%, according to a Gallup poll, claimed church membership. That's a drop of 23% in a 20-year period, an, an amazing decline, and we think, where does all of this lead us? Where is all this going? Has there ever been a day like this? And then I learn on the news that my Christmas presents are on a container ship somewhere off the coast of Los Angeles. And um, in all likelihood, they're not going to make it to my house on time. If you feel like the world as you once knew it has changed, you're right, it has changed. And we're just beginning to understand that change and figure it out, and we hardly even know how to ask the right question. But I would suggest that the combination of a COVID epidemic and the consequent economic and social uncertainty coupled with political wrangling and international stress and trade issues and racial conflicts have added up to a most distressing, uncertain, emotionally taxing time. If you don't believe that at my age, we should talk to some of our grandchildren and ask how they're feeling about things. So where do you go in a day like this? Well, we go to where we have always gone. Many of us have claimed this book and this message as the center of our life for the course of a lifetime. And when we are faced in uncertainty and anxiety and fear and an unknown picture that looks dim and dark, we open this book to different places and we realize that in many ways the world has hardly changed at all. Those of us who like to read history understand that there have been other moments in the history of this world that have been equally dark and even much darker than our own. And I want to suggest to you that the passage we're going to look at for a few moments this morning in the book of Jeremiah was exactly one such moment. It's taking place in the year 627 before Christ. And it happens in the land of Palestine, you know, that uh, Middle East center of our faith. But in the big picture of world history, it, it uh, has often been regarded as inconsequential. But at 627 in Palestine, there is a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He is introduced in the book that bears his name, chapter 1, verse 1, in these words. Take a look at them. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Jeremiah 1, verse 10. So who is Jeremiah? 
really don't know much about him. We know his father was a priest, so he had a strong spiritual foundation in his life. We know he was from the town of Anathoth, which is about three miles to the north of Jerusalem, right on the edge of the wilderness, and by every account, it is an inconsequential place. The only reason we would know it, we would think, is the fact that Jeremiah came from there. So who is this person from an unknown place who has a message to his day? And I'm suggesting a message to our day as well. What do we know about him? And why should we care about him, really? Why in 2020 would we want to look 2,600 years back and ask, what happened there that can inform, inspire, encourage a life like ours today? Well, I think the answer to that question, why should we listen to his words, come in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2, where we read, the words of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to him. So you are introduced first to Jeremiah's words, but then the explanation that it is God's word that came to Jeremiah. And whenever we are looking for direction in our lives and we listen to a lot of people say a lot of things, we need to ask, so where are these words coming from? Who's saying them? Why should we listen to them? Why should we believe them? Well, here it is in chapter 1, verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him. So God comes to him with a message. In a world of a multitude of opinions, each demanding to be heard and some demanding to be respected, isn't it refreshing to believe that there is a word from God that can help us in our day and give us some guidance and direction and encouragement? We're going to look at what God has to say in other passages in Scripture, but before we get that, I, I need to do, can I, five minutes of history? You okay with that? I know some of you kids are not thrilled about uh, social studies, right, history, but this really is kind of important to try to figure out what was going on in Jeremiah's life. So Jeremiah was a prophet, the man who spoke from God, and he became a prophet when Josiah was a king, and Josiah was a king. Any, do we have any eight-year-olds in the audience this morning, around eight years old? Yeah? How'd you like to be king at age eight? And the rest of us who are looking at the eight-year-olds would say, how'd you like to have an eight-year-old king? I mean, we have leaders who are in their 70s. Judah was being led by a young boy, eight years old, who is now 21 when Jeremiah becomes a prophet. So Jeremiah is dealing with a 21-year-old king by the name of Josiah, who by all accounts is one of the high points in the history of God's people. Josiah did things for Judah that had not been done for generations. He restored the worship of God. He honored God. He lifted the corrupt morals of a people and brought them to a place where God would have them be. He was a high point, a bright light in the dark history of God's people. Josiah then is ruling when Jeremiah becomes prophet. So you'd think that Jeremiah has a wonderful career ahead of him. He lived and he prophesied for about 40 years. But when you read the Bible, you find that Josiah reigned for about 30 years. He died, and his son took over, a young man by the name of Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz lasted, guess how long? Three months. So after this long reign of Josiah, in which Jeremiah sees a bright future for the people of God, you have Jehoahaz, who lasts three months. And then he's replaced by Jehoiakim, 
who is replaced by Jehoiakim, who is replaced by Zedekiah. And in that period of decline, after the death of King Josiah, Judah slides down a slippery slope until at last it, it ceases to exist as a nation. It is carted off to Babylon. Because here's the real history. While we know the biblical history, there's a much bigger story being played on the world history. It's always the case. We know the history of the Bible, but the history of the Bible is planted in the history of this world. And the history of the world at that time is that Judah is a little nation ruled by a variety of kings who is over and over and over again being conquered and influenced by world powers, three superpowers. First, Assyria, and then when Assyria begins to decline, Egypt steps into the wings, and then when Egypt begins to decline, Babylonia steps into the wings, and these three superpowers all impact the life of God's people. So Jeremiah is dealing with more than his relationship with the kings. He has superpowers who are impacting his life and doing things that will ultimately mean the end of the people of God in the land that God had given them. So that's the history. And knowing that history, you begin to understand how Jeremiah expresses his thoughts to God. At some moments, they are bright and cheerful, but far more frequently because he sees these superpowers and the decay of the kingdom Far more frequently, he's tearing his hair out because the people of God just won't listen to what's happening, understand what's happening, and change and deal with what's happening. There are times he is so depressed, he says, I wish I'd never been born. He has words that are so strong and frightening for the people of God. In all of those times, he represents God's word for a world that in his kingdom, but around the world, is changing in ways he could hardly understand. The question is, what did God have him say? What did he have to say to that huge environment and that intimate environment in which he lived and worked? We, write, we read that in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is a summary of his entire teaching. The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth, he says. Imagine that. The hand of God to this nobody from nowhere reaches out and touches his mouth, and God says to him, Now, I have put my words in your mouth. And today, God having his eye on the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians, and the kings that lead to the decay of Judah. Today, he said, I appoint you, Jeremiah, over nations and kingdoms. One man is going to take on a whole world history and the history of the people of God. I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. to uproot and to plant. Uproot and plant. Do we have any gardeners? Any of you in the congregation like gardening? 
It's kind of a sad time of year, right? You know, you're going to uh, take the rest of the, the vegetables out of your garden because it's pretty well done. You're going to get a frost maybe in this next week or so, and you kind of have that letdown because the growing season is over, and we're going to be in for a, a number of months when the earth lies quiet before it springs to life again. Uh, one of the things I really do like about living here in the Elmhurst area and driving down Prospect and taking a look at what's happened at Timothy and here at Faith Church and lawns along the way is the way that people care for their properties. It really is a beautiful place. I mean, flowers and shrubs and the grass that's always cut. I mean, we do care about the way things look and we take care of, like we should, the way things are in this world. And part of that work means tearing out the things that no longer belong and then planting the things that we want to see grow. And God says in the language of gardening to Jeremiah, I am appointing you to uproot and to plant. And in my mind, that can easily be shifted to two thoughts. Uh, Jeremiah's ministry was a ministry of weeding and watering. Weeding is ripping out the things that don't belong, and watering is seeing to it that the things that should belong are growing and prospering in the kingdom. So his was a life of weeding and watering taking out those things that no longer had a place in the heart of God and the people of God, addressing the issues of his day both within the nation but broader than that in the Assyrian, Egyptian, and Babylonian nations that have no place in God's mind and heart and planting there the things that belong so that you come to a wonderful verse like Jeremiah 29, right? The, the one we all know, I know the plans I have for you, says God, plans to help you, not hurt you, the plans to give you a hope and a future. He's planting seeds of hope in dark times. That was his ministry, to rip out the things that don't belong and to put in the things that do belong, weeding and watering. So I'm thinking, do you think it's time for us as a people of God to do some weeding, to do some watering? Is it a time for the body of Christ, the people of God, to, in a moment like Jeremiah's moment, invite him to pull into the parking lot of Faith Church and say to us this morning, folks, there are some things you need to get after, and there are some things you need to take care of. Some stuff that's got to stop and some stuff that's got to start. And then he'd whip around the corner and stop over at Elmhurst Church and say, folks, there are some things you need to get after. Some things you got to stop and some things you got to start. And then he'd head over to Yorkville Presbyterian. Then he'd go down to Christ Church Oakbrook, and he would make his way through the, the, the body of faith in our suburbs and say, folks, listen, we've got to do some weeding and we've got to do some watering. Well, I think it's a, it's a thought worth considering. And I've considered that and come to the conclusion that there are some things I can say about weeding and watering that are from the heart of God for the people of God at a moment like this. And um, let me tell you, th this is not a moment in which, because a pastor has a microphone and you don't, that I get to lay out my pet peeves and you have to deal with your own. I mean, that wouldn't be right, would it? It's rather, a, I, I think, a moment in which we would honestly, before the Spirit of God, say, God, what in your word do you have to say to us right now that could be of help to us? What we need to stop, what we need to start, what we need to weed, what we need to water. So here's what has come to my mind and my heart in preparing this message. We need to weed the talking 
and what are the listening? James 1, verse 19. Brothers, sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick, slow, slow. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. In 60 seconds, just about any person in this congregation could start a conversation that would go badly with somebody else in this church by asking the right question or making, the, uh, making a certain statement. You know, Just say, so what do you think about global warming? So shall we make America great again? Do you really think we need to limit the number of guests? Do you believe this business about masks is really important in our world? Why is it that some people think they're entitled to the things that we all had to work for? I mean, you, you know how you can sort of drop these conversational grenades that are going to explode and um, generate all kinds of thought. I, I ask those questions and the blood pressure starts to rise in the back of my neck and there's a time then when conversation in our day has become, even in the church, it's become lobbying these grenades at each other, hoping to blow each other out of the water by our own opinion and the strength of our opinion, our deeply and dearly held convictions. I know that I have trouble in this area myself, and I will confess that. And I know that because often when somebody is speaking to me, I'm not listening to what they say, I am already deciding what I'm going to say back. I'm not the only one that does that, am I? And I don't think so. I mean, if you start, I'm thinking, here's what I want to say, and it's not as though I really care to listen to what you have to say to me. It's I care that you understand what I want to say to you. It's kind of like being married, and my wife says to me, um, Bert, we need to talk. And what she really means is, Bert, you need to listen. Kind of goes that way, right? slow to speak, quick to listen. The way my mind works, uh, my first and instinctive response is seldom my best and God-honoring choice. So uh, even at my age, I'm struggling to say things like, you know, um, I, I understand what you're saying, I just don't agree with it. Or help me understand what you're saying because I, I don't think I quite get where it is you're coming from. Weed the speaking, water the listening. What a great thing if Faith Church were known as the congregation where people listen to each other. And, and what a great godly example you could be to the rest of us who need to struggle with that issue in our day. Another truth from the Word of God. I think that speaks powerfully today about weeding and watering as I've thought about it and the issue of today. It's from St. Paul in chapter uh, 4, verse 6 of his letter to the Philippians. Paul says, weed the worries and water gratitude. Weed the worries, water gratitude, and nothing be anxious, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Weed anxiety, water gratitude. 
There are a lot of things you can say about anxiety in our day. And one of the troubling things we're seeing in, in our younger people is the result of COVID and the kinds of things that have done to them through isolation and those sorts of issues far better and bigger than I understand. I need to listen to more on that is that anxiety has ripped some of our young people at a place that is so unfortunate when we look at them as an older generation. We want to say to them, how are you going to deal with that? How can you deal with that? Celia and I had a long conversation about anxiety. And it came out of a, a, a longer conversation with a person who, in, in our um, experience, is just hardwired to worry. I mean, if you're talking about something, immediately became the opportunity for her to begin worrying about it and grappling it and, and grappling with it, and, and it produced all kinds of anxiety in her. And then you listen to that anxiety, and you begin to hear it all over the place. Am I going to get sick? Am I going to get better? What happens if I don't wear a mask? Am I going to lose my job? What happens if my kids are at school? How are we going to handle this? And then you add to that the stuff that comes into our life we never saw coming. I mean, not the big stuff, but the personal stuff. There is a difficult, draining, mental death spiral that anxiety can produce in some of us. And Paul says, you know, we've got to weed that. Somehow we've got to get at the roots of that kind of thing and, and tug it out, get rid of it. And for Paul, he says, the way you've got to start dealing with that is through prayer. I say, okay, I'm anxious. My prayer is, oh, God, you know I'm anxious. And I'm saying, please help me. You know I'm so worried about my job. And, you know, Paul said, that's not where you start. You'll get there. But not until you have come through gratitude to petition. God, I thank you that you're there listening to me. And I thank you that you're bigger than I am. And I thank you that you know the way out of this. And I thank you that you have provided me the most profound needs of body and soul, life and in death in my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my heavenly Father. And all things will work together for my good. So God, thank you, thank you, thank you that in my anxiety, I can come to you and you know what I'm worried about. I'm worried that she is so sick and she'll not get better. I'm worried that my job is on the line. I don't know how to deal with this. I'm worried that I don't know how to talk to my kids who aren't talking to me, whatever it is. But you get through gratitude to the petition in everything, says Paul. It is a wonderful gift that through prayer, God can simply allow anxiety to drain away. After that long conversation with a person who was dealing with anxiety, Celia, my wife, finally said, you know what, um, I, I wake up at about 3 o'clock a lot of mornings. I just can't get back to sleep. That, by the way, is the bad news for those of you who are younger than us 70-year-olds. A lot of us are awake at 3 in the morning thinking about things we can't do anything about. And um, how do you deal with that sort of stuff? Celia said, Here, here's what I do with it. I, got so many things on my mind or I'm worried about it, I start to think about things, I begin to list all the things that I am thankful for and somehow God quiets my fears and I can go back to sleep. So, sounds simple, does it work? I don't know, try it. What are you weeding, what are you watering in your life? Weed anxiety, 
What a gratitude. Psalm 63, weed self-seeking, water-seeking God. I love this psalm. In the early church, converts were asked to memorize Psalm 63 as a part of their coming to know Jesus because it is such a profoundly powerful, true passage. Psalm 63 is the cry of David's heart at a hard moment in his life. His son was chasing him, wanting to kill him. Now, can you imagine that? One of your kids wants to take you, wipe you off the face of the earth. If that were happening to you, how would you be praying? Say, God, you've got to do something. Help me, please. Get me out of this. Change his heart. Do something. But listen to David in Psalm 63. Here's his prayer. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry, weary land in which there is no water. David doesn't cry out for help. He cries out for God's presence. He said, God, I need less of the stuff that's gripping my life and more of your heart in me. He's not saying, God, I want to live, bring me home again, surround me, protect me. He simply says, God, I need you, I thirst for you, like a person who hasn't had a drink in far too long thirsts for a sip of water. He weeds self and waters the longing for God. I think that is such a powerful prayer. And I, I would encourage you, if, if um, you believe it might help you, to memorize the first eight verses of Psalm chapter 63. David's cry for the heart of God, even out of his own misery, out of his own longing. He is weeding self and watering the deep longing for God. And when you think you can't handle anymore, what you really need more of is more of God, who has handled it all. So one last thought. I'm going to invite you to just finish the sentence in your mind and then we're going to go home. Finish this sentence. I need to stop. And then add this sentence. I need to start. Uproot and plant, weed and water, weeding and watering, the word of God, the work of God's people. Let's pray. Oh God, you know us so well. You've known your people over the ages. You gave your people at a hard moment a person like Jeremiah who brought them to places that he, he must have had a hard time talking about and they had a hard time listening. And yet, Father God, you touched his lips, he spoke your word, and he said, folks, there are things we need to weed and things we need to water. And it's no different with us, you know that. We simply ask God that you and your Holy Spirit 
will speak to us about that which needs to come to an end and that which needs to be given new life in our hearts, in our experience. And we pray that these will be words of life for us, even as we leave to live as your children in this world. In the name of Jesus, amen.